Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. My name is Niaz Dehim, and I recently completed a PGY-1 and PGY-2 Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership Residency Program, and I'm currently a Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at Houston Methodist Hospital. I will be your host for today's Pharmacy Podcast. With me is Daniel Ashby, who most recently completed service as the Vice President and Chief Pharmacy Officer for the Johns Hopkins Health System in Baltimore, Maryland, after 20 years of service to Johns Hopkins in an impressive career that spanned nearly 48 years in hospital and health system pharmacy practice. He also currently serves as clinical professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy and adjunct professor at the College of Notre Dame of Maryland School of Pharmacy. Mr. Ashby has received a long list of awards and honors. Most recently, the ASHP Foundation announced the establishment of the Daniel M. Ashby Fund for Excellence in Pharmacy Residency Training. The Ashby Fund will support initiatives that recognize and enhance excellence in pharmacy residency training, and you can learn more by checking the link in the podcast episode description. Dan, thank you so much for joining us for today's Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Niaz, thank you for the kind words with the introduction, and maybe more importantly, the invitation to participate. Of course, happy to be here today with you. Our discussion for this podcast focuses on leadership topics and themes through a reflection on health system pharmacy by a recipient of the Harvey A.K. Whitney Lecture Award. We will discuss the direction of the pharmacy profession in areas of practice innovation, in addition to understand the role of the pharmacy workforce to sustain the enterprise. Dan, you're an established and well-known leader within health system pharmacy, and you have certainly experienced quite a bit of indelible marks through networking and career opportunities that have left lasting impacts on your professional career. Can you briefly share your trajectory and how your career path has brought you to this point, and what may be a few key elements to share with new practitioners and leaders? Well, those are good questions. Let me break those into maybe two segments. One, to talk a little bit about my career path, and then also to talk about, as you suggested, some key elements that were a part of my success. My career path began in Detroit, Michigan. I'm a graduate of Wayne State University. And one of my first positions was at Old Grace Hospital. I was fortunate that Lyle Moore was the director of pharmacy. He was very committed to progressive pharmacy practice and the internship program. And after I graduated from school, I began my career in critical care, then eventually drug information, which was where clinical practice existed in the 70s, and then as assistant director. I was also fortunate that Grace merged with Harper Hospital, and a gentleman named Ronald Turnbull was hired. I became the associate director while he served as director, and I was in the Detroit area for 22 years. I later moved to Methodist Healthcare in Memphis for nine years, and then the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for 20 years. A common element in each of those positions was the access to strong mentors and preceptors, which made a big difference in my career. When you talk about those three key elements, it's a perfect lead in to what I think is one of the most important, and that's having an access to a mentor, 
and being able to work with that individual. Mick Hunt, when he was president of ASHP, contacted 15 leaders around the country and asked them what the most significant element was for their success. 14 of the 15 could identify a single mentor that made all the difference. The one individual that couldn't, Billy Woodward, actually identified three people. He was thrust into a director of pharmacy position early in his career. He decided to contact three people that he respected, spent a week with each of those individuals, and then continued to work with those individuals the remainder of his career. We've seen lots of examples how mentors can make a difference. Dunbar High School near Johns Hopkins Hospital. Students at Johns Hopkins University contacted Dunbar High School and asked them to provide the names of the 10 worst students in the class. They were more than willing and actually provided the names of 20 students. Well, the mentors worked with them and after one semester, all had passing grades, all graduated, and many ended up with scholarships. So having access to a mentor, I think, is a key element. Number two, I think it's important to have a home pharmacy association. For me, that home has always been ASHP, whether at a national, state, or local level. It really helps you develop networks, and those are really a series of expanded mentors that can help you. As you build your network, think about three principles. One is self-similarity. Don't pick people that look like you, act like you, and think like you. Look for diversity. Number two is proximity. The proximity principle, you don't want people necessarily just close to you, but expand your reach. And number three, I think the most important thing is shared activities. Find ways to engage your network in meaningful activities. A good example of how you can demonstrate the value of a network comes from Redonda Miller, who's president of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Our pharmacy residents always used to meet with Redonda when they began the residency program. And one of the residents asked Redonda, what was the key to your success? Redonda's answer, I always ignored everybody's advice. The advice was don't get involved, don't participate, just do the minimum amount. She always volunteered, she always got involved, she took on assignments. And that leads to number three, make sure you're engaged, make sure you're looking for big projects, make sure you're looking for opportunities to get outside your comfort zone and grow. You're only growing when you're outside that comfort zone. And as you finish your residency program, Niaz, you want a position that three years from now, you can say, I have three years of experience rather than one year of experience three times. The biggest benefit you'll see from that is your confidence will increase. Although I don't think that's something you have to worry too much about. I think you have a pretty good level of confidence already. Thank you so much, Dan, and thank you for sharing your reflections with us. What an amazing series of experiences you have had, and it's always inspiring to hear of one's pathway and the mentors and colleagues that have made such a significant impact. These key elements truly resonate with me and I'm sure with our audience. As we're approaching the 10th anniversary of your Harvey A.K. Whitney 
award lecture, Permission Granted. The core topics during your lecture really touch upon the redesign of the pharmacy practice residency model, the competence and quality of the pharmacist workforce, and the indispensable role of pharmacy students that have transformed in practice during the last several years. What opportunities do you feel that we may have for continued growth within these domains? And given the current healthcare landscape, how should we best refocus these past efforts to really meet the needs of a truly dynamic environment? Well, that's a good question. And maybe to back up for those individuals that are watching or listening to our podcast, part of the element or answer to your question rests within the title of my Whitney address, Permission Granted. This title actually came from a presentation by Dr. Max Ray, where he shared with the audience a number of letters that had been written to a very famous pharmacist, Dr. T.N. Ediser. And residents would write letters, would ask questions, and Dr. T.N. Ediser would respond. Now, I was confused sitting in the audience, thinking that I knew most people in pharmacy and certainly somebody that was very famous I would know. Dr. Ray later shared that Dr. T.N. Ediser is resident spelled backwards. So what he was suggesting was the resident was writing a letter to themselves or speaking to themselves. And in several instances, they said permission granted to do something. They were giving themselves permission to act. I think that's one of the key elements here as we look at this question. You have to take that initiative, you have to make decisions, and you have to take ownership. I think a key element for understanding where we are and where we go might rest with an understanding of the 2016 ACPE Doctor of Pharmacy standards. If you are in an, or with an audience and you ask that audience, primarily of hospital and health system practitioners, how many of you have read the 2016 standards? Almost nobody will raise their hand. Well, if you do read those standards, you suddenly realize that 30% of the curriculum is within IPPE and APPE experiences. As practitioners, we have a tremendous level of responsibility to support the continued growth and development of pharmacy students. The colleges of pharmacy, there's a need to make sure that there's an adequate preparation and a career path for students as they determine what they want to do and they need to be able to do that earlier. Some key elements, I think, departments of pharmacy need to have a structure that really supports student training. I suspect you found at Houston Methodist a very structured process for your residency program. We had one at Johns Hopkins. At the same time, we didn't have nearly as structured a process for student training. We started to make those changes to improve our structure and support, whether it's IPPE or APPE, and we thought it was also important that students participate in a clinical track so that they can provide and find a meaningful role in patient care. I think long-term, the medical model is part of a key. We see with the medical model, attendings teaching residents, residents teaching medical students, 
And I think that same model, there are many lessons that can be learned for us in pharmacy. Not all of it can be adopted, but many elements of it can. And I think long-term, the issue of competency is very important. We've trended to support the BPS certification, and I think that makes a good transition to support the continued competency and development of pharmacists. Well, Dan, I think we'll all have a bit of homework after this to read those ACP standards, but reflecting on my own time as a pharmacy student, I 100% um, agree and echo with your thoughts, and I believe that emphasizing the time with learners and new practitioners can really go a long way and truly influence the trajectory of their career path. It's really interesting that the development of the pharmacy workforce was a feature of both your Harvey A. Kate Whitney Award lecture and the 2020 ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast, which really highlights the innovation forward-thinking practice goals that your lecture had reflected on. What are some of your thoughts on the achievements gained in the past several years regarding the training of clinical pharmacy specialists and technicians? And on that note, will the next steps be to then truly tie it to that board certification and potentially dual healthcare degree programs? And then based on the current trends and identified healthcare needs, what may be a few additional key areas to target for the pharmacy workforce development? You know, those are great questions. And it's been interesting in my career to watch the evolution of pharmacy practice. I had the opportunity following my term as president of ASHP to visit Taiwan with Dr. Henry Manassi. The Taiwanese Pharmacy Association had requested that we come to talk about all of the elements of regulatory requirements that influence the practice of pharmacy. What would make the biggest impact? What would help advance pharmacy practice? When we arrived in Taiwan and we did some tours, I found that in many instances, the practice of pharmacy there was very similar to what it was in the 70s in the United States. As we returned to the United States on the plane, it started to beg the question, did the evolution of the all PharmD program provide people that were trained and able to provide services? or did demands and requests from medical staff, nursing and other practitioners create a demand for pharmacists to be involved in certain activities? I think the answer is yes. It was a combination of both. You might not remember that before 2000, it was not an all PharmD Doctor of Pharmacy educational requirement. A Bachelor of Science degree existed. And that was the career path I had. I wasn't nearly as well prepared to practice clinical pharmacy as you are today. It made me wonder what would have happened if in the 70s and 80s, we had been more aggressive with an educational path for pharmacy technicians. Where would they be today? We need pharmacy technicians to be able to step up and assume major elements of responsibility with the drug distribution system. We know it can be done. We know it can be done safely. At the same time, we don't have a healthcare-wide or profession-wide agreement on what a standard curriculum should be, what the entry-level requirements are to be a pharmacy technician, 
and what levels of advanced training or specific programs should be there that technicians now have a career path and they're interested in advancing as a pharmacy technician. We're paying them consistent with increased levels of responsibility and more and more pharmacists are able to delegate more and more elements of the routine task with drug distribution while they assume roles that they've been trained for. So that's the challenge that's facing us now. And I guess maybe one of the take-homes from this is we're going to need to be patient. It's going to take some time to get consensus. As much consternation as there is today with a standard element for pharmacy technicians, it was probably even more so for an all-doctor of pharmacy program. You brought up some really great points. The standardization of the pharmacy technician education and training system is truly going to be among the next steps for advancement of the pharmacy career ladder. And very interesting to also correlate it to the development of the pharmacist uh, trajectory within the last several decades. You've clearly invested a lifetime in teaching and mentoring future practitioners throughout the country. And in the last decade, we've really seen a lot of change in the pharmacy practice models, as you've mentioned, including an increased interprofessional collaboration to advance common goals and objectives. What advice do you have for health systems and pharmacy schools to continue that trajectory of didactic and experiential learning to really best encourage, frame, and leverage the talents of pharmacy learners? And then when you go back and really reflect on your pharmacy career, what may be those special and transformative moments with pharmacy learners that you recall? You know, those are good questions. And as I listen to those questions, I hear a couple segments you're looking for some comments on. You know, one is, uh, what are my thoughts about what hospitals and health systems need to do in pharmacy schools to continue that growth? I think there's another element that maybe goes into that is what do students need to do? You know, for hospitals and health systems, they need to make sure they have that commitment to quality educational experiences for pharmacy students. They need to make sure students have an active role versus observing they need to play a role in providing care to patients. They should be assigned patients to care for, and they should be assessed by preceptors to determine the level of autonomy that they might have with practice. Certainly, there are lots of opportunities to take care of medication histories, identify lab values, and maybe serve as a pharmacy ambassador uh, for patients that are admitted to the hospital. There needs to be collaboration with the College of Pharmacy. They need to collaborate with sites so that they can define what that role would be during an IPPE or APPE experience and make sure the students as well prepared as possible to assume that role. We need to make sure there's a structure that supports student engagement. We need to support and encourage students to be engaged in a clinical track that allows them to complete multiple rotations at one site. So you're no longer worried about where do I park my car, but you're more worried about how I contribute to the patient care that's there. As a result, colleges of pharmacy need to support early career decisions for students. And I think colleges, colleges also need to make sure that students end up with a longitudinal project 
there's only so much that can be done in a one-month rotation. And shouldn't students have the opportunity to be engaged in bigger projects that might go over a six-month or maybe even last year of their schooling period? Certainly, telemedicine is going to play a role, and we need to have training with that. At the same time, I think we also need to be concerned about students. They need to be willing to accept the challenge. They need to have a commitment to lifelong learning. They need to think about after graduation, board certification. You talked about additional healthcare degrees. I think very quickly students, even those interested in clinical, are gonna find that they're gonna be put in positions where they need to manage projects and heaven forbid, have learned something about finance because uh, that's all going to be part of the analysis. There are obviously practice opportunities uh, and advancement opportunities with ASHP and concerns about how we might transition from CE to professional development that might support the development of skills that help them be successful. Not easy challenges, but some ideas there that I, I think will provide support. You had mentioned also the uh, question about special or transformative moments with pharmacy leaders that I can recall. You know, this is something that's always been something special for preceptors and residency program directors. I firmly believe that when you're a resident, there's a new person that's there every three or four months. Residents tend to spend a year looking forward. I've often heard it, it's expressed as a year that you'll hate for that year and love for the rest of your life. But we tend to look at what's the next rotation? What's the next assignment? What do I need to do next? And very seldom do you have that opportunity to turn around and look at where you are now versus where you were when you started that program. Residents gain confidence. The knowledge, skills, and abilities for practice improves, and I've seen it sometimes as simple as a resident's dress or appearance. You know, some people might call it executive presence or professional presence. I think that happens. And the contributions and the level of what they contribute to the organization increases. I think most residents can go back to their program three years later or five years later and see something that they did that continues on to the present day. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with more than 300 residents in my career, and I've seen elements where each of them have grown. You know, if you were to ask me for one example, I might pick on Megan Davlin Swarthout. Megan joined Hopkins as a summer intern, and during the first week of her employment, a representative from the Human Resources Department came to my office, knocked on my door, and said, Dan, do you have a moment? And my initial response was, well, what did I do wrong now? They said, no, no, that's not it. You've got a summer intern here from Ohio. And I said, yep, blonde, curly hair. And they said, that one. And I said, yep, I know, I see it, I know what's there. Well, she did an exemplary job during the summer internship. She applied for our health system pharmacy administration residency and matched. 
It was a combined program with the Cary Business School MBA. They graduated 412 students that year, and she was one of two students with a perfect 4.0, and she was selected to be the commencement speaker at graduation for the Johns Hopkins University. You saw that excellence from the beginning, and you saw it progress, and it just took and provided a lot of pride and satisfaction with her growth. And you'd like to think you had something to do with that. Although for Megan, she was on fire from the beginning and has done and continues to do an exceptional job. Your belief and continuous efforts in the provision of opportunities for farm students and residents has truly paved the way for didactic and experiential learning. And you've brought up great points regarding the reflection of how far we've come versus and what we have achieved versus where we may still aspire to go. Very much a wonderful story to share about one of your past residents as well. Thank you. Dan, in your Harvey A.K. Whitney Award lecture, you also discussed a vision of the future with key elements that incorporated pharmacist participation in direct patient care activities, the team-based pharmacy practice model, technological innovation, and pharmacy resident and student experiential activities. With consideration of today's dynamic healthcare model, can you share your perspectives of the direction of the pharmacy profession within the next 10 years? And what can the profession work on more collaboratively to help achieve this vision? Well, I think you might have saved the most difficult question for the end. You probably did that on purpose, I think. And trying to consider what's going to happen in the next 10 years is extremely difficult. You know, when I wrote my Whitney lecture, I tended to look at where the profession was then and what message did we need to share with the profession of things they could do that would bring about a quick change. You know, as I think about the next 10 years, we clearly have taken some huge steps to address the educational requirements for pharmacists, and we've taken some steps to provide venues for them to continue to grow. You know, when I think about what we need to do. One of the things I reflect on were the comments from Kathleen Palicki, now our current ASHP past president. When she came before the ASHP meeting with the Meet the Candidate session, one of the things she said was, pharmacy needs to make a transition. Pharmacists need to change. Pharmacists shouldn't be people that are no, because, but pharmacists should be people that are yes, if. I think I've seen so many instances where there are perceived barriers and people tend to start a conversation with, well, we can't do this because. And I typically tend to look at that and go, well, let's back up. Why can't we do that? What would we need to have change if we can make that transition? So we need to become a yes-if profession. And I think as the challenges face us over the next 10 years, that will be a big element and key to our success. Number two, I think a key element for the future is motivation. Not motivation for self-recognition, but motivation to bring about change. One of the best publications from ASHP is the best practice document. 
it has the consolidated work of a number of practitioners that have written standards and guidelines. And I think people should become familiar with that document, should look at what they're doing in their own organization. And in those instances where we're meeting or exceeding those best practice standards, take a bow, it's something to celebrate. On the other hand, where there's a gap between where we are in the department and what the best standards and practices are, it gives us a roadmap of other things that we can do. You know, I came across a quote a while back. It was actually in a book that Deb Devereaux gave me. And here's the quote. Somehow I can't believe there are any heights that can't be scaled by someone who knows the secrets of making dreams come true. This special secret, it seems to me, can be summarized in four C's. They are curiosity, confidence, courage, and the greatest of all is consistency with that confidence that's applied. When you believe in a thing, believe in it all the way, implicitly and unquestionably. The quote comes from Walt Disney, who was certainly a dreamer, a film producer, an entrepreneur, and maybe the idea that dreams can come true were something that goes with Disney. So I think that's, those are some of the key elements for the next 10 years. I have no doubt that in the next 10 years, your thoughts will continue to resonate with the profession and be reflected upon even after then. Your legacy is truly well regarded with your forward thinking and innovative approaches. And saving one of the best questions for last, Dan, are there any additional pearls or words of wisdom that you wish to share with our listeners today? Well, one of the key elements that I think contributes to somebody's success, some people would say help people become a star rather than above average performer, are the concepts of emotional intelligence. Uh, Linda Tyler is a candidate right now for the presidency of ASHP, and I came across an editorial that she wrote. It was published in the November 1st, 2015 issue of the journal. It's on page 1849. The title is Not Just for Leaders. And the idea of her editorial was that emotional intelligence is a concept that's not there just for leaders. It might go along with the concept that everybody is a leader in pharmacy. Some people have a formal position, maybe that's the capital L, but other people have leadership opportunities. The five traits of emotional intelligence include self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy for others, motivation, and social skills. We don't really have time today to develop each of those traits. The other document, the first item that's referenced in Linda Tyler's editorial is an article by Daniel Goldman that was published in the Harvard Business Review called What Makes a Leader? And I think between Linda's editorial and Daniel Goldman's article, people could read those two documents and have a good understanding of what those five elements are. Would you have mastered those five elements by reading Linda and Daniel's articles? No, but I think you might create an awareness of what those traits are. And as people move down their career path, 
they'll see examples where those traits are demonstrated, and then they'll start to develop their own skills. There's also the opportunity to assess your own emotional intelligence if you want to do that in a formal way. So I think identifying what the five traits are, understanding what the five traits are, and taking steps to enhance your emotional intelligence would be a real important element for people's success. Thanks for sharing the traits with us. I very much believe it's a hot topic in the pharmacy profession today as well and something that will have lasting impacts as we consider how to further develop it within our own styles. That's all the time that we have today. I want to sincerely thank Daniel Ashby for joining us to discuss his reflections on health system pharmacy leadership from his very legendary career. Truly inspiring to all of us across the pharmacy profession, students, residents, practitioners, and leaders. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.